Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 45 Southern Sports in the North one hears the war mentioned in social conversation once a month, sometimes as often as once a week, but as a distinct subject for talk it has long ago been relieved of duty. There are sufficient reasons for this. Given a dinner company of six gentlemen today, it can easily happen that four of them, and possibly five, were not in the field at all. So the chances are four to two, or five to one, that the war will at no time during the evening become the topic of conversation, and the chances are still greater that if it become the topic, it will remain so but a little while. If you add six ladies to the company, you have added six people who saw so little of the dread realities of the war that they ran out of talk concerning them years ago, and now would soon weary of the war topic if you brought it up. The case is very different in the South. There every man you meet was in the war, and every lady you meet saw the war. The war is the great chief topic of conversation. The interest in it is vivid and constant. The interest in other topics is fleeting. Mention of the war will wake up a dull company and set their tongues going, when nearly any other topic would fail. In the South, the war is what A.D. is elsewhere. They date from it. All day long you hear things placed as having happened since the war, or doing the war, or before the war, or right after the war, or about two years, or five years, or ten years before the war, or after the war. It shows how intimately every individual was visited, in his own person, by that tremendous episode. It gives the inexperienced stranger a better idea of what a vast and comprehensive calamity invasion is than he can ever get by reading books at the fireside. At a club one evening a gentleman turned to me and said in an aside, "'You notice, of course, that we are nearly always talking about the war. It isn't because we haven't anything else to talk about, but because nothing else has so strong an interest for us. And there is another reason. In the war, each of us, in his own person, seems to have sampled all the different varieties of human experience. As a consequence, you can't mention an outside matter of any sort, but it will certainly remind some listener of something that happened during the war, and out he comes with it. Of course, that brings the talk back to the war. You may try all you want to, to keep other subjects before the house, and we may all join in and help, but there can be but one result. The most random topic would load every man up with war reminiscences, and shut him up, too, and talk would be likely to stop presently, because you can't talk pale inconsequentialities when you've got a crimson fact or fancy in your head that you are burning to fetch out. 
The poet was sitting some little distance away, and presently he began to speak about the moon. The gentleman who had been talking to me remarked in an aside, "'There, the moon is far enough from the seat of war, but you will see that it will suggest something to somebody about the war. In ten minutes from now the moon, as a topic, will be shelved.' The poet was saying he had noticed something which was a surprise to him, had had the impression that down here, toward the equator, the moonlight was much stronger and brighter than up north, had had the impression that when he visited New Orleans many years ago, the moon—interruption from the other end of the room—'Let me explain that!' reminds me of an anecdote. Everything has changed since the war, for better or for worse. But you'll find people down here born grumblers, who see no change except the change for the worse. There was an old negro woman of this sort. A young New Yorker said in her presence, What a wonderful moon you have down here. She sighed and said, Ah, bless your heart, honey. You ought to seen that moon for the wall. The new topic was dead already, but the poet resurrected it and gave it a new start. A brief dispute followed, as to whether the difference between northern and southern moonlight really existed, or was only imagined. Moonlight talk drifted easily into talk about artificial methods of dispelling darkness. Then somebody remembered that when Farragut advanced upon Port Hudson on a dark night, and did not wish to assist the aim of the Confederate gunners, he carried no battle-lanterns, but painted the decks of his ship white and thus created a dim but valuable light, which enabled his own men to grope their way around with considerable facility. At this point the war got the floor again, the ten minutes not quite up yet. I was not sorry, for war talk by men who have been in a war is always interesting, whereas moon talk by a poet who has not been in the moon is likely to be dull. We went to a cockpit in New Orleans on a Saturday afternoon. I had never seen a cock-fight before. There were men and boys there of all ages and all colors, and of many languages and nationalities. But I noticed one quite conspicuous and surprising absence—the traditional brutal faces. There were no brutal faces. With no cock-fighting going on, you could have played the gathering on a stranger for a prayer-meeting, and after it began, for a revival, provided you blindfolded your stranger for the shouting was something prodigious. A negro and a white man were in the ring, everybody else outside. The cocks were brought in in sacks, and when time was called, they were taken out by the two bottle-holders, stroked, caressed, poked toward each other, and finally liberated. The big black cock plunged instantly at the little gray one, and struck him on the head with his spur. The gray responded with spirit. Then the babble of many-tongued shoutings broke out, and ceased not thenceforth. When the cocks had been fighting some little time, I was expecting them momently to drop dead, for both were blind, red with blood, and so exhausted that they frequently fell down. Yet they would not give up, neither would they die. The negro and the white man would pick them up every few seconds, wipe them off, blow cold water on them in a fine spray, and take their heads in their mouths and hold them there a moment, to warm back the perishing life, perhaps, I do not know. Then, being set down again, the dying creatures would totter gropingly about, with dragging wings, find each other, strike a guesswork blow or two, and fall exhausted once more. I did not see the end of the battle. 
I forced myself to endure it as long as I could, but it was too pitiful a sight. So I made frank confession to that effect, and we retired. We heard afterward that the black cock died in the ring, and fighting to the last. Evidently there is abundant fascination about this sport, for such as have had a degree of familiarity with it. I never saw people enjoy anything more than this gathering enjoyed this fight. The case was the same with old gray heads and with boys of ten. They lost themselves in frenzies of delight. The cocking mane is an inhuman sort of entertainment, there is no question about that. Still, it seems a much more respectable and far less cruel sport than fox-hunting, for the cocks like it. They experience as well as confer enjoyment, which is not the fox's case. We assisted, in the French sense, at a mule-race one day. I believe I enjoyed this contest more than any other mule there. I enjoyed it more than I remember having enjoyed any other animal-race I ever saw. The grandstand was well filled with the beauty and the chivalry of New Orleans. That phrase is not original with me. It is the Southern reporter's. He has used it for two generations. He uses it twenty times a day, or twenty thousand times a day, or a million times a day, according to the exigencies. He is obliged to use it a million times a day, if he have occasion to speak of respectable men and women that often for he has no other phrase for such service except that single one. He never tires of it. It always has a fine sound to him. There is a kind of swell medieval bulliness and tinsel about it that pleases his gaudy barbaric soul. If he had been in Palestine in the early times, we should have had no references to much people out of him. No, he would have said, The beauty and the chivalry of Galilee assembled to hear the Sermon on the Mount. It is likely that the men and women of the South are sick enough of that phrase by this time, and would like a change, but there is no immediate prospect of their getting it. The New Orleans editor has a strong, compact, direct, unflowery style, wastes no words, and does not gush. Not so with his average correspondent. In the appendix I have quoted a good letter, penned by a trained hand, but the average correspondent hurls a style which differs from that. For instance, the Times Democrat sent a relief steamer up one of the bayous last April. This steamer landed at a village up there somewhere, and the captain invited some of the ladies of the village to make a short trip with him. They accepted and came aboard. The steamboat shoved out up the creek. That was all there was to it. And that is all that the editor of the Times Democrat would have got out of it. There was nothing in the thing but statistics, and he would have got nothing else out of it. He would probably have even tabulated them, partly to secure perfect clearness of statement, and partly to save space. But his special correspondent knows other methods of handling statistics. He just throws off all restraint and wallows in them. On Saturday, early in the morning, the beauty of the place graced our cabin, and proud of her fair freight, the gallant little boat glided up the bayou. Twenty-two words to say the ladies came aboard, and the boat shoved out up the creek, is a clean waste of ten good words, and is also destructive of compactness of statement. The trouble with the southern reporter is women. They unsettle him. They throw him off his balance. He is plain and sensible and satisfactory until a woman heaves in sight. Then he goes all to pieces. 
his mind totters, he becomes flowery and idiotic. From reading the above extract, you would imagine that this student of Sir Walter Scott is an apprentice, and knows next to nothing about handling a pen. On the contrary, he furnishes plenty of proofs, in his long letter, that he knows well enough how to handle it, when the women are not around to give him the artificial flower complaint. For instance, at four o'clock ominous clouds began to gather in the southeast, and presently from the gulf there came a blow which increased in severity every moment. It was not safe to leave the landing then, and there was a delay. The oaks shook off long tresses of their mossy beards to the tugging of the wind, and the bayou in its ambition put on miniature waves in mocking of much larger bodies of water. A lull permitted a start, and homewards we steamed, an inky sky overhead and a heavy wind blowing. As darkness crept on, there were few on board who did not wish themselves nearer home. There is nothing wrong with that. It is good description, compactly put. Yet there was great temptation there to drop into lurid writing. But let us return to the mule. Since I left him, I have rummaged around and found a full report of the race. In it I find confirmation of the theory which I broached just now, namely, that the trouble with the southern reporter is women. Women supplemented by Walter Scott and his knights and beauty and chivalry and so on. This is an excellent report, as long as the women stay out of it. But when they intrude, we have this frantic result. It will be probably a long time before the ladies' stand presents such a sea of foam-like loveliness as it did yesterday. The New Orleans women are always charming, but never so much so as at this time of the year, when in their dainty spring costumes they bring with them a breath of balmy freshness and an odor of sanctity unspeakable. The stand was so crowded with them that, walking at their feet and seeing no possibility of approach, many a man appreciated, as he never did before, the Perry's feeling at the gates of paradise, and wondered what was the priceless boon that would admit him to their sacred presence. Sparkling on their white-robed breasts or shoulders were the colors of their favorite knights, and were it not for the fact that the doughy heroes appeared on unromantic mules, it would have been easy to imagine one of King Arthur's gala days. There were thirteen mules in the first heat. All sorts of mules they were, all sorts of complexions, gaits, dispositions, aspects. Some were handsome creatures, some were not. Some were sleek, some hadn't had their fur brushed lately. Some were innocently gay and frisky. Some were full of malice and all unrighteousness. Guessing from looks, some of them thought the matter on hand was war. Some thought it was a lark. The rest took it for a religious occasion, and each mule acted according to his convictions. The result was an absence of harmony well compensated by a conspicuous presence of variety, variety of a picturesque and entertaining sort. All the riders were young gentlemen in fashionable society. If the reader has been wondering why it is that the ladies of New Orleans attend so humble an orgy as a mule race, the thing is explained now. It is a fashion freak. All connected with it are people of fashion. It is great fun, and cordially liked. The mule race is one of the marked occasions of the year. It has brought some pretty fast mules to the front. One of these had to be ruled out, because he was so fast that he turned the thing into a one-mule contest, and robbed it 
of one of its best features, variety. But every now and then somebody disguises him with a new name and a new complexion, and rings him in again. The riders dress in full jockey costumes of bright-colored silks, satins, and velvets. The thirteen mules got away in a body, after a couple of false starts, and scampered off with prodigious spirit. As each mule and each rider had a distinct opinion of his own as to how the race ought to be run, and which side of the track was best in certain circumstances, and how often the track ought to be crossed, and when a collision ought to be accomplished, and when it ought to be avoided, these twenty-six conflicting opinions created a most fantastic and picturesque confusion, and the resulting spectacle was killingly comical. Mile heat time two minutes twenty-two seconds. Eight of the thirteen mules distanced. I had a bet on a mule which would have won if the procession had been reversed. The second heat was good fun, and so was the consolation race for beaten mules, which followed later. But the first heat was the best in that respect. I think that much the most enjoyable of all races is a steamboat race. But, next to that, I prefer the gay and joyous mule rush. Two red-hot steamboats raging along, neck and neck, straining every nerve, that is to say every rivet in the boilers, quaking and shaking and groaning from stem to stern, spouting white steam from the pipes, pouring black smoke from the chimneys, raining down sparks, parting the river into long breaks of hissing foam. This is sport that makes a body's very liver curl with enjoyment. A horse-race is pretty tame and colorless in comparison. Still, a horse-race might be well enough, in its way, perhaps, if it were not for the tiresome false starts. But then nobody is ever killed. At least, nobody was ever killed when I was at a horse-race. They have been crippled, it is true. But this is little to the purpose. End of chapter 45「I saw the procession of the mystic crew of Comus there twenty-four years ago, with knights and nobles and so on, clothed in silken and golden Paris-made gorgeousnesses, planned and bought for that single night's use, and in their train all manner of giants, dwarfs, monstrosities, and other diverting grotesquerie, a startling and wonderful sort of show as it filed solemnly and silently down the street, in the light of its smoking and flickering torches. But it is said that in these latter days the spectacle is mightily augmented, as to cost, splendor, and variety. There is a chief personage, Rex, and, if I remember rightly, neither this king nor any of his great following of subordinates is known to any outsider. All these people are gentlemen of position and consequence, and it is a proud thing to belong to the organization. So the mystery in which they hide their personality is merely for romance's sake, and not on account of the police. 
Mardi Gras is, of course, a relic of the French and Spanish occupation. But I judge that the religious feature has been pretty well knocked out of it now. Sir Walter has got the advantage of the gentlemen of the cowl and rosary, and he will stay. His medieval business, supplemented by the monsters and the oddities, and the pleasant creatures from fairyland, is finer to look at than the poor fantastic inventions and performances of the reveling rabble of the priest's day, and serves quite as well, perhaps, to emphasize the day and admonish men that the grace-line between the worldly season and the holy one is reached. This Mardi Gras pageant was the exclusive possession of New Orleans until recently, but now it has spread to Memphis and St. Louis and Baltimore. It has probably reached its limit. It is a thing which could hardly exist in the practical North, would certainly last but a very brief time, as brief a time as it would last in London, for the soul of it is the romantic, not the funny and the grotesque. Take away the romantic mysteries, the kings and knights and big-sounding titles, and Mardi Gras would die, down there in the South. The very feature that keeps it alive in the South, girly-girly romance, would kill it in the North or in London. Puck and Punch and the Press Universal would fall upon it and make merciless fun of it, and its first exhibition would be also its last. Against the crimes of the French Revolution and of Bonaparte may be set two compensating benefactions. The Revolution broke the chains of the Ancien Regime and of the Church, and made of a nation of abject slaves a nation of free men, and Bonaparte instituted the setting of merit above birth, and also so completely stripped the divinity from royalty, that whereas crowned heads in Europe were gods before, they are only men since, and can never be gods again, but only figureheads, and answerable for their acts like common clay. Such benefactions as these compensate the temporary harm which Bonaparte and the Revolution did, and leave the world in debt to them for these great and permanent services to liberty, humanity, and progress. Then comes Sir Walter Scott, with his enchantments, and by his single might checks this wave of progress, and even turns it back, sets the world in love with dreams and phantoms, with decayed and swinish forms of religion, with decayed and degraded systems of government, with the silliness and emptiness, sham grandeurs, sham gods, and sham chivalries of a brainless and worthless long-vanished society. He did measureless harm, more real and lasting harm, perhaps, than any other individual that ever wrote. Most of the world has now outlived good part of these harms, though by no means all of them, but in our South they flourish pretty forcefully still. Not so forcefully as half a generation ago, perhaps, but still forcefully. There the genuine and wholesome civilization of the nineteenth century is curiously confused and commingled with the Walter Scott middle-aged sham civilization. And so you have practical, common-sense, progressive ideas and progressive works, mixed up with the duel, the inflated speech, and the jejune romanticism of an absurd past that is dead and out of charity ought to be buried. But for the Sir Walter Scott disease the character of the Southerner, or Southern, according to Sir Walter's starchier way of phrasing it, 
would be wholly modern, in place of modern and medieval mixed, and the South would be fully a generation further advanced than it is. It was Sir Walter that made every gentleman in the South a major, or a colonel, or a general, or a judge, before the war, and it was he also that made these gentlemen value these bogus decorations. For it was he that created rank and caste down there, and also reverence for rank and caste, and pride and pleasure in them. Enough is laid on slavery, without fathering upon it these creations and contributions of Sir Walter. Sir Walter had so large a hand in making Southern character, as it existed before the war, that he is in great measure responsible for the war. It seems a little harsh toward a dead man to say that we never should have had any war but for Sir Walter, and yet something of a plausible argument might perhaps be made in support of that wild proposition. The Southerner of the American Revolution owned slaves, so did the Southerner of the Civil War. But the former resembles the latter, as an Englishman resembles a Frenchman. The change of character can be traced rather more easily to Sir Walter's influence than to that of any other thing or person. One may observe, by one or two signs, how deeply that influence penetrated, and how strongly it holds. If one take up a northern or southern literary periodical of forty or fifty years ago, he will find it filled with wordy, windy, flowery eloquence, romanticism, sentimentality all imitated from Sir Walter, and sufficiently badly done, too, innocent travesties of his style and methods, in fact. This sort of literature being the fashion in both sections of the country, there was opportunity for the fairest competition, and, as a consequence, the South was able to show as many well-known literary names, proportioned to population, as the North could. But a change has come, and there is no opportunity now for a fair competition between North and South, for the North has thrown out that old inflated style, whereas the Southern writer still clings to it, clings to it, and has a restricted market for his wares as a consequence. There is as much literary talent in the South now as ever there was, of course, but its work can gain but slight currency under present conditions. The authors write for the past, not the present. They use obsolete forms, and a dead language. But when a Southerner of genius writes modern English, his book goes upon crutches no longer, but upon wings. And they carry it swiftly all about America and England, and through the great English reprint publishing houses of Germany, as witness the experience of Mr. Cable and Uncle Remus, two of the very few Southern authors who do not write in the Southern style. Instead of three or four widely known literary names, the South ought to have a dozen or two, and will have them when Sir Walter's time is out. A curious exemplification of the power of a single book for good or harm is shown in the effects wrought by Don Quixote, and those wrought by Ivanhoe. The first swept the world's admiration for the medieval chivalry silliness out of existence, and the other restored it. As far as our South is concerned, the good work done by Cervantes is pretty nearly a dead letter. So effectually has Scott's pernicious work undermined it. End of chapter 46
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 47 Uncle Remus and Mr. Cable. Mr. Joel Chandler Harris, Uncle Remus, was to arrive from Atlanta at seven o'clock Sunday morning. So we got up and received him. We were able to detect him among the crowd of arrivals at the hotel counter by his correspondence with a description of him which had been furnished us from a trustworthy source. He was said to be undersized, red-haired, and somewhat freckled. He was the only man in the party whose outside tallied with this bill of particulars. He was said to be very shy. He is a shy man. Of this there is no doubt. It may not show on the surface, but the shyness is there. After days of intimacy, one wonders to see that it is still in about as strong force as ever. There is a fine and beautiful nature hidden behind it, as all know who have read the Uncle Remus book, and a fine genius, too, as all know by the same sign. I seem to be talking quite freely about this neighbor, but in talking to the public I am but talking to his personal friends and these things are permissible among friends. He deeply disappointed a number of children who had flocked eagerly to see Mr. Cable's house to get a glimpse of the illustrious sage and oracle of the nation's nurseries. They said, Why, he's white! They were grieved about it. So, to console them, the book was brought, that they might hear Uncle Remus's tar-baby story from the lips of Uncle Remus himself or what in their outraged eyes was left of him. But it turned out that he had never read aloud to people, and was too shy to venture the attempt now. Mr. Cable and I read from books of ours to show him what an easy trick it was. But his immortal shyness was proof against even this sagacious strategy, so we had to read about Br'er Rabbit ourselves. Mr. Harris ought to be able to read the negro dialect better than anybody else for in the matter of writing it he is the only master the country has produced. Mr. Cable is the only master in the writing of French dialects that the country has produced, and he reads them in perfection. It was a great treat to hear him read about Jean Apouquelin, and about Inerarity and his famous Pigchou, representing Louisiana refusing to Hunter the Union along with passages of nicely shaded German dialect from a novel which was still in manuscript. It came out in conversation that in two different instances Mr. Cable got into grotesque trouble by using, in his books, next to impossible French names, which nevertheless happened to be borne by living and sensitive citizens of New Orleans. His names were either inventions, or were borrowed from the ancient and obsolete past. I do not now remember which. But at any rate living bearers of them turned up, and were a good deal hurt at having attention directed to themselves and their affairs in so excessively public a manner. Mr. Warner and I had an experience of the same sort when we wrote the book called The Gilded Age. There is a character in it called Sellers. I do not remember what his first name was in the beginning, but anyway Mr. Warner did not like it, and wanted it improved. He asked me if I was able to imagine a person named Eschel Sellers. Of course I said I could not, without stimulants. 
He said that away out west once he had met and contemplated and actually shaken hands with a man bearing that impossible name, Eschel Sellers. He added, It was twenty years ago. His name has probably carried him off before this, and if it hasn't he will never see the book anyhow. We will confiscate his name. The name you are using is common, and therefore dangerous. There are probably a thousand sellers bearing it, and the whole horde will come after us. But Eschel Sellers is a safe name. It is a rock. So we borrowed that name, and when the book had been out about a week, one of the stateliest and handsomest and most aristocratic-looking white men that ever lived called around, with the most formidable libel suit in his pocket that ever, well, in brief, we got his permission to suppress an edition of ten million footnote, figures taken from memory and probably incorrect, I think it was more, ten million copies of the book, and change that name to Mulberry Sellers in future editions. End of chapter 47 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 48 Sugar and Postage One day on the street I encountered the man whom, of all men, I most wished to see, Horace Bixby, formerly pilot under me, or rather over me, now captain of the great steamer, city of Baton Rouge, the latest and swiftest addition to the anchor line. The same slender figure, the same tight curls, the same springy step, the same alertness, the same decision of eye and answering decision of hand, the same erect military bearing. Not an inch gained or lost in girth, not an ounce gained or lost in weight, not a hair turned. It is a curious thing to leave a man thirty-five years old and come back at the end of twenty-one years and find him still only thirty-five. I have not had an experience of this kind before, I believe. There were some crow's feet, but they counted for next to nothing, since they were inconspicuous. His boat was just in. I had been waiting several days for her, proposing to return to St. Louis in her. The captain and I joined a party of ladies and gentlemen, guests of Major Wood, and went down the river fifty-four miles in a swift tug, to ex-Governor Warmouth's sugar plantation. Strung along below the city were a number of decayed, ramshackly, superannuated old steamboats, not one of which had I ever seen before. They had all been built and worn out and thrown aside since I was here last. This gives one a realizing sense of the frailness of a Mississippi boat and the briefness of its life. Six miles below town, a fat and battered brick chimney, sticking above the magnolias and live oaks, was pointed out as the monument erected by an appreciative nation to celebrate the Battle of New Orleans, Jackson's victory over the British, January 8, 1815. The war had ended, the two nations were at peace, but the news had not yet reached New Orleans. If we had had the cable telegraph in those days, this blood would not have been spilt, those lives would not have been wasted, and, better still, Jackson would probably never have been president. 
We have gotten over the harms done us by the War of 1812, but not over some of those done us by Jackson's presidency. The Warmouth Plantation covers a vast deal of ground, and the hospitality of the Warmouth Mansion is graduated to the same large scale. We saw steam plows at work here for the first time. The traction engine travels about on its own wheels till it reaches the required post. Then it stands still, and by means of a wire rope pulls the huge plow towards itself two or three hundred yards across the field, between the rows of cane. The thing cuts down into the black mold a foot and a half deep. The plow looks like a fore-and-aft brace of a Hudson River steamer inverted. When the negro steersman sits on one end of it, that end tilts down near the ground, while the other sticks up high in air. This great seesaw goes rolling and pitching like a ship at sea, and it is not every circus rider that could stay on it. The plantation contains two thousand six hundred acres, six hundred and fifty are in cane, and there is a fruitful orange grove of five thousand trees. The cane is cultivated after a modern and intricate scientific fashion, too elaborate and complex for me to attempt to describe but it lost forty thousand dollars last year. I forget the other details. However, this year's crop will reach ten or twelve hundred tons of sugar. Consequently, last year's loss will not matter. These troublesome and expensive scientific methods achieve a yield of a ton and a half, and from that to two tons to the acre, which is three or four times what the yield of an acre was in my time. The drainage-ditches were everywhere alive with little crabs, fiddlers. One saw them scampering sideways in every direction whenever they heard a disturbing noise. Expensive pests, these crabs, for they bore into the levees and ruined them. The great sugar-house was a wilderness of tubs and tanks and vats, and filters, pumps, pipes, and machinery. The process of making sugar is exceedingly interesting. First you heave your cane into the centrifugals and grind out the juice, then run it through the evaporating pan to extract the fiber, then through the bone filter to remove the alcohol, then through the clarifying tanks to discharge the molasses, then through the granulating pipe to condense it, then through the vacuum pan to extract the vacuum. It is now ready for market. I have jotted these particulars down from memory. The thing looks simple and easy. Do not deceive yourself. To make sugar is really one of the most difficult things in the world, and to make it right is next to impossible. If you will examine your own supply every now and then for a term of years, and tabulate the result, you will find that not two men in twenty can make sugar without getting sand into it. We could have gone down to the mouth of the river and visited Captain Ede's great work, the Jetties, where the river has been compressed between walls, and thus deepened to twenty-six feet. But it was voted useless to go, since at this stage of the water everything would be covered up and invisible. We could have visited that ancient and singular burg, Pilot Town, which stands on stilts in the water, so they say, where nearly all communication is by skiff and canoe even to the attending of weddings and funerals, and where the littlest boys and girls are as handy with the oar as unamphibious children are with the velocipede. We could have done a number of other things, but on account of limited time we went back home. 
The sail up the breezy and sparkling river was a charming experience, and would have been satisfyingly sentimental and romantic but for the interruptions of the tug's pet parrot, whose tireless comments upon the scenery and the guests were always this worldly and often profane. He had also a superabundance of the discordant, ear-splitting, metallic laugh common to his breed, a machine-made laugh, a Frankenstein laugh, with the soul left out of it. He applied it to every sentimental remark, and to every pathetic song. He cackled it out with hideous energy after home again, home again from a foreign shore, and said he wouldn't give a damn for a tug-load of such rot. Romance and sentiment cannot long survive this sort of discouragement, so the singing and talking presently ceased, which so delighted the parrot that he cursed himself hoarse for joy. Then the male members of the party moved to the forecastle to smoke and gossip. There were several old steamboat men along, and I learned from them a great deal of what had been happening to my former river friends during my long absence. I learned that a pilot whom I used to steer for is become a spiritualist, and for more than fifteen years has been receiving a letter every week from a deceased relative through a New York spiritualist medium named Manchester. Postage, graduated by distance, from the local post office in Paradise to New York, five dollars. From New York to St. Louis, three cents. I remember Mr. Manchester very well. I called on him once, ten years ago, with a couple of friends, one of whom wished to inquire after a deceased uncle. This uncle had lost his life in a peculiarly violent and unusual way half a dozen years before. A cyclone blew him some three miles, and knocked a tree down with him, which was four feet through at the butt, and sixty-five feet high. He did not survive this triumph. At the séance just referred to, my friend questioned his late uncle through Mr. Manchester, and the late uncle wrote down his replies, using Mr. Manchester's hand and pencil for that purpose. The following is a fair example of the question asked, and also of the sloppy twaddle in the way of answers, furnished by Manchester under the pretense that it came from the spectre. If this man is not the paltriest fraud that lives, I owe him an apology. Question. Where are you? Answer. In the spirit world. Q. Are you happy? A. Very happy, perfectly happy. Q. How do you amuse yourself? A. Conversation with friends and other spirits. Q. What else? A. Nothing else, nothing else is necessary. Q. What do you talk about? A. About how happy we are and about friends left behind in the earth, and how to influence them for their good. Q. When your friends in the earth all get to the spirit land, what shall you have to talk about then? Nothing but about how happy you all are? No reply. It is explained that spirits will not answer frivolous questions. Q. How is it that spirits that are content to spend an eternity in frivolous employments, and accept it as happiness, are so fastidious about frivolous questions upon the subject? No reply. Q. Would you like to come back? A. No. Q. Would you say that under oath? A. Yes. Q. What do you eat there? A. We do not eat. Q. What do you drink? A. We do not drink. Q. What do you smoke? A. We do not smoke. Q. 
What do you read? A. We do not read. Q. Do all the good people go to your place? A. Yes. Q. You know my present way of life. Can you suggest any additions to it in the way of crime that will reasonably ensure my going to some other place? A. No reply. Q. When did you die? A. I did not die. I passed away. Q. Very well, then. When did you pass away? How long have you been in the spirit land? A. We have no measurements of time here. Q. Though you may be indifferent and uncertain as to dates and times in your present condition and environment, this has nothing to do with your former condition. You had dates, then. One of these is what I ask for. You departed on a certain day in a certain year. Is not this true? A. Yes. Q. Then name the day of the month. Much fumbling with pencil on the part of the medium, accompanied by violent spasmodic jerkings of his head and body, for some little time. Finally, explanation to the effect that spirits often forget dates, such things being without importance to them. Q. Then this one has actually forgotten the date of its translation to the spirit-land? This was granted to be the case. Q. This is very curious. Well, then, what year was it? More fumbling, jerking, idiotic spasms on the part of the medium. Finally, explanation to the effect that the spirit has forgotten the year. Q. This is indeed stupendous. Let me put one more question, one last question to you, before we part to meet no more. For even if I fail to avoid your asylum, a meeting there will go for nothing as a meeting, since by that time you will easily have forgotten me and my name. Did you die a natural death, or were you cut off by a catastrophe? A. After long hesitation and many throes and spasms. Natural death. This ended the interview. My friend told the medium that when his relative was in this poor world, he was endowed with an extraordinary intellect and an absolutely defectless memory, and it seemed a great pity that he had not been allowed to keep some shred of these for his amusement in the realms of everlasting contentment, and for the amazement and admiration of the rest of the population there. This man had plenty of clients, has plenty yet. He receives letters from spirits located in every part of the spirit world and delivers them all over this country through the United States mail. These letters are filled with advice, advice from spirits, who don't know as much as a tadpole, and this advice is religiously followed by the receivers. One of these clients was a man whom the spirits, if one may thus plurally describe the ingenious Manchester, were teaching how to contrive an improved railway-car wheel. It is coarse employment for a spirit, but it is higher and wholesomer activity than talking for ever about how happy we are. End of chapter 48 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 49. Episodes in Pilot Life. In the course of the tugboat gossip, it came out that 
out of every five of my former friends who had quitted the river, four had chosen farming as an occupation. Of course, this was not because they were peculiarly gifted agriculturally, and thus more likely to succeed as farmers than in other industries. The reason for their choice must be traced to some other source. Doubtless they chose farming, because that life is private, and secluded from eruptions of undesirable strangers, like the pilot-house hermitage. And doubtless they also chose it, because on a thousand nights of black storm and danger they had noted the twinkling lights of solitary farmhouses as the boat swung by, and pictured to themselves the serenity and security and coziness of such refuges at such times and so had, by and by, come to dream of that retired and peaceful life as the one desirable thing to long for, anticipate, earn, and at last enjoy. But I did not learn that any of these pilot-farmers had astonished anybody with their successes. Their farms do not support them. They support their farms. The pilot-farmer disappears from the river annually, about the breaking of spring, and is seen no more till next frost. Then he appears again in damaged homespun, combs the hay-seed out of his hair, and takes a pilot-house berth for the winter. In this way he pays the debts which his farming has achieved during the agricultural season. So his river bondage is but half broken. He is still the river's slave the hardest half of the year. One of these men bought a farm, but did not retire to it. He knew a trick worth two of that. He did not propose to pauperize his farm by applying his personal ignorance to working it. No, he put the farm into the hands of an agricultural expert to be worked on shares. Out of every three loads of corn, the expert to have two, and the pilot the third. But at the end of the season the pilot received no corn. The expert explained that his share was not reached. The farm produced only two loads. Some of the pilots whom I had known had had adventures, the outcome fortunate sometimes, but not in all cases. Captain Montgomery, whom I had steered for when he was a pilot, commanded the Confederate fleet in the great battle before Memphis. When his vessel went down, he swam ashore, fought his way through a squad of soldiers, and made a gallant and narrow escape. He was always a cool man. Nothing could disturb his serenity. Once, when he was captain of the Crescent City, I was bringing the boat into port at New Orleans, and momently expecting orders from the hurricane deck, but received none. I had stopped the wheels, and there my authority and responsibility ceased. It was evening, dim twilight, the captain's hat was perched upon the big bell, and I supposed the intellectual end of the captain was in it. But such was not the case. The captain was very strict therefore I knew better than to touch a bell without orders. My duty was to hold the boat steadily on her calamitous course, and leave the consequences to take care of themselves, which I did. So we went ploughing past the sterns of steamboats, and getting closer and closer. The crash was bound to come very soon, and still that hat never budged, for, alas, the captain was napping in the Texas. Things were becoming exceedingly nervous and uncomfortable. It seemed to me that the captain was not going to appear in time to see the entertainment, but he did. Just as we were walking into the stern, 
of a steamboat. He stepped out on deck, and said with heavenly serenity, "'Set her back on both!' which I did. But a trifle late, however, for the next moment we went smashing through that other boat's flimsy outer works with a most prodigious racket. The captain never said a word to me about the matter afterwards, except to remark that I had done right, and that he hoped I would not hesitate to act in the same way again, in like circumstances. One of the pilots whom I had known when I was on the river had died a very honorable death. His boat caught fire, and he remained at the wheel until he got her safe to land. Then he went out over the breastboard with his clothing in flames, and was the last person to get ashore. He died from his injuries in the course of two or three hours, and his was the only life lost. The history of Mississippi piloting affords six or seven instances of this sort of martyrdom, and half a hundred instances of escapes from a like fate which came within a second or two of being fatally too late. But there are no instances of a pilot deserting his post to save his life, while by remaining and sacrificing it he might secure other lives from destruction. It is well worth while to set down this noble fact, and well worth while to put it in italics, too. The cub pilot is early admonished to despise all perils connected with a pilot's calling, and to prefer any sort of death to the deep dishonor of deserting his post, while there is any possibility of his being useful in it. And so effectively are these admonitions inculcated, that even young and but half-tried pilots can be depended upon to stick to the wheel and die there when occasion requires. In a Memphis graveyard is buried a young fellow who perished at the wheel a great many years ago in White River to save the lives of other men. He said to the captain that if the fire would give him time to reach a sandbar some distance away, all could be saved, but that to land against the bluff bank of the river would be to ensure the loss of many lives. He reached the bar and grounded the boat in shallow water, but by that time the flames had closed around him, and in escaping through them he was fatally burned. He had been urged to fly sooner, but had replied, as became a pilot to reply, I will not go. If I go, nobody will be saved. If I stay, no one will be lost but me. I will stay. There were two hundred persons on board, and no life was lost but the pilots. There used to be a monument to this young fellow in that Memphis graveyard. While we tarried in Memphis on our down-trip, I started out to look for it, but our time was so brief that I was obliged to turn back before my object was accomplished. The tugboat gossip informed me that Dick Kenner was dead, blown up near Memphis, and killed, that several others whom I had known had fallen in the war, one or two of them shot down at the wheel, that another and very particular friend whom I had steered many trips for had stepped out of his house in New Orleans one night years ago to collect some money in a remote part of the city, and had never been seen again was murdered, and thrown into the river, it was thought. That Ben Thornburg was dead long ago, also his wild cub, whom I used to quarrel with, all through every daylight watch. A heedless, reckless creature he was, and always in hot water, always in mischief. An Arkansas passenger brought an enormous bear aboard one day, and chained him to a lifeboat on the hurricane deck. Thornburg's cub could not rest till he had gone there and unchained the bear to see what he would do. 
he was promptly gratified. The bear chased him around and around the deck for miles and miles, with two hundred eager faces grinning through the railings for audience, and finally snatched off the lad's coat-tail and went into the Texas to chew it. The off-watch turned out with alacrity, and left the bear in sole possession. He presently grew lonesome, and started out for recreation. He ranged the whole boat, visited every part of it, with an advance guard of fleeing people in front of him, and a voiceless vacancy behind him. And when his owner captured him at last, those two were the only visible beings anywhere. Everybody else was in hiding, and the boat was a solitude. I was told that one of my pilot friends fell dead at the wheel from heart disease, in 1869. The captain was on the roof at the time. He saw the boat breaking for the shore, shouted, and got no answer, ran up, and found the pilot lying dead on the floor. Mr. Bixby had been blown up in Madrid Bend, was not injured, but the other pilot was lost. George Ritchie had been blown up near Memphis, blown into the river from the wheel, and disabled. The water was very cold. He clung to a cotton bale, mainly with his teeth, and floated until nearly exhausted. When he was rescued by some deck-hands who were on a piece of the wreck, they tore open the bale and packed him in the cotton, warmed the life back into him, and got him safe to Memphis. He is one of Bixby's pilots on the Baton Rouge now. Into the life of a steamboat clerk, now dead, had dropped a bit of romance—somewhat grotesque romance, but romance nevertheless. When I knew him, he was a shiftless young spendthrift, boisterous, good-hearted, full of careless generosities, and pretty conspicuously promising to fool his possibilities away early, and come to nothing. In a western city lived a rich and childless old foreigner and his wife and in their family was a comely young girl, sort of friend, sort of servant. The young clerk, of whom I have been speaking, whose name was not George Johnson, but who shall be called George Johnson for the purposes of this narrative, got acquainted with this young girl, and they sinned, and the old foreigner found them out, and rebuked them. Being ashamed, they lied, and said they were married, that they had been privately married. Then the old foreigner's hurt was healed, and he forgave and blessed them. After that they were able to continue their sin without concealment. By and by the foreigner's wife died, and presently he followed after her. Friends of the family assembled to mourn, and among the mourners sat the two young sinners. The will was opened and solemnly read. It bequeathed every penny of that old man's great wealth to Mrs. George Johnson and there was no such person. The young sinners fled forth then, and did a very foolish thing, married themselves before an obscure justice of the peace, and got him to antedate the thing. That did no sort of good. The distant relatives flocked in, and exposed the fraudful date with extreme suddenness and surprising ease, and carried off the fortune, leaving the Johnsons very legitimately and legally and irrevocably chained together in honourable marriage, but with not so much as a penny to bless themselves withal. Such are the actual facts, and not all novels have for a base so telling a situation. End of chapter 49
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 50 The Original Jacobs We had some talk about Captain Isaiah Sellers, now many years dead. He was a fine man, a high-minded man, and greatly respected both ashore and on the river. He was very tall, well-built, and handsome, and in his old age, as I remember him, his hair was as black as an Indian's, and his eye and hand were as strong and steady, and his nerve and judgment as firm and clear as anybody's, young or old, among the fraternity of pilots. He was the patriarch of the craft. He had been a keelboat pilot before the day of steamboats, and a steamboat pilot before any other steamboat pilot still surviving at the time I speak of had ever turned a wheel. Consequently his brethren held him in the sort of awe in which illustrious survivors of a bygone age are always held by their associates. He knew how he was regarded, and perhaps this fact added some trifle of stiffening to his natural dignity, which had been sufficiently stiff in its original state. He left a diary behind him, but apparently it did not date back to his first steamboat trip, which was said to be 1811, the year the first steamboat disturbed the waters of the Mississippi. At the time of his death, a correspondent of the St. Louis Republican culled the following items from the diary. In February 1825 he shipped on board the steamer Rambler at Florence, Alabama, and made, during that year, three trips to New Orleans and back, this on the General Carroll, between Nashville and New Orleans. It was during his stay on this boat that Captain Sellers introduced the tap of the bell as a signal to heave the lead, previous to which time it was the custom for the pilot to speak to the men below when soundings were wanted. The proximity of the forecastle to the pilot-house, no doubt, rendered this an easy matter, but how different on one of our palaces of the present day! In 1827 we find him on board the President, a boat of 285 tons burden, and plying between Smithland and New Orleans. Thence he joined the Jubilee in 1828, and on this boat he did his first piloting in the St. Louis trade, his first watch extending from Herculaneum to St. Genevieve. On May 26, 1836, he completed and left Pittsburgh in charge of the steamer Prairie, a boat of four hundred tons, and the first steamer with a stateroom cabin ever seen at St. Louis. In 1857 he introduced the signal for meeting boats, and which has, with some slight change, been the universal custom of this day, in fact is rendered obligatory by act of Congress. As general items of river history we quote the following marginal notes from his general log. In March 1825 General Lafayette left New Orleans for St. Louis on the low-pressure steamer Natchez. In January 1828 twenty-one steamers left the New Orleans wharf to celebrate the occasion of General Jackson's visit to that city. In 1830 the North America made the run from New Orleans to Memphis in six days, best time on record to that date. It has since been made in two days and ten hours. In 1831 the Red River cut-off formed. 
In 1832, steamer Hudson made the run from White River to Helena, a distance of seventy-five miles, in twelve hours. This was the source of much talk and speculation among the parties directly interested. In 1839, Great Horseshoe Cut-Off formed. Up to the present time, a term of thirty-five years, we ascertain, by reference to the diary, he has made four hundred and sixty round-trips to New Orleans, which gives a distance of one million one hundred and four thousand miles, or an average of eighty-six miles a day. Whenever Captain Sellers approached a body of gossiping pilots, a chill fell there, and talking ceased. For this reason, whenever six pilots were gathered together, there would always be one or two newly-fledged ones in the lot, and the elder ones would be always showing off before these poor fellows, making them sorrowfully feel how callow they were, how recent their nobility, and how humble their degree, by talking largely and vaporously of old-time experiences on the river, always making it a point to date everything back as far as they could, so as to make the new men feel their newness to the sharpest degree possible, and envy the old stagers in the like degree. And how these complacent bald heads would swell, and brag, and lie, and date back ten, fifteen, twenty years, and how they did enjoy the effect produced upon the marveling and envying youngsters. And perhaps, just at this happy stage of the proceedings, the stately figure of Captain Isaiah Sellers, that real and only genuine son of antiquity, would drift solemnly into the midst. Imagine the size of the silence that would result on the instant, and imagine the feelings of those bald heads, and the exultation of their recent audience, when the ancient captain would begin to drop casual and indifferent remarks of a reminiscent nature, about islands that had disappeared, and cut-offs that had been made a generation before the oldest bald head in the company had ever set his foot in a pilot-house. Many and many a time did this ancient mariner appear on the scene in the above fashion, and spread disaster and humiliation around him. If one might believe the pilots, he always dated his islands back to the misty dawn of river history, and he never used the same island twice, and never did he employ an island that still existed, or give one a name which anybody present was old enough to have heard of before. If you might believe the pilots, he was always conscientiously particular about little details. Never spoke of the state of Mississippi, for instance. No. He would say, when the state of Mississippi was where Arkansas now is, and would never speak of Louisiana or Missouri in a general way, and leave an incorrect impression on your mind. No. He would say, when Louisiana was up the river farther, or when Missouri was on the Illinois side. The old gentleman was not of literary turn or capacity, but he used to jot down brief paragraphs of plain practical information about the river, and sign them Mark Twain, and give them to the New Orleans Picayune. They related to the stage and condition of the river, and were accurate and valuable, and thus far they contained no poison. But in speaking of the stage of the river to-day, at a given point, the captain was pretty apt to drop in a little remark about this being the first time he had seen the water so high, or so low at that particular point, for forty-nine years. And now and then he would mention island so-and-so, 
and follow it in parenthesis with some such observation as disappeared in 1807, if I remember rightly. In these antique interjections lay poison and bitterness for the other old pilots, and they used to chafe the Mark Twain paragraphs with unsparing mockery. It so chanced that one of these paragraphs, footnote, the original M.S. of it, in the captain's own hand, has been sent to me from New Orleans. It reads as follows. Vicksburg, May 4, 1859. My opinion for the benefit of the citizens of New Orleans, the water is higher this far up than it has been since eight. My opinion is that the water will be feet deep in Canal Street before the first of next June. Mrs. Turner's plantation at the head of Big Black Island is all under water, and it has not been since 1815. I. Sellers. One of these paragraphs became the text for my first newspaper article. I burlesqued it broadly, very broadly, stringing my fantastics out to the extent of eight hundred or a thousand words. I was a cub at the time. I showed my performance to some pilots, and they eagerly rushed it into print in the New Orleans True Delta. It was a great pity, for it did nobody any worthy service, and it sent a pang deep into a good man's heart. There was no malice in my rubbish, but it laughed at the captain. It laughed at a man to whom such a thing was new and strange and dreadful. I did not know then, though I do now, that there is no suffering comparable with that which a private person feels when he is for the first time pilloried in print. Captain Sellers did me the honor to profoundly detest me from that day forth. When I say he did me the honor, I am not using empty words. It was a very real honor to be in the thoughts of so great a man as Captain Sellers, and I had wit enough to appreciate it and be proud of it. It was distinction to be loved by such a man, but it was a much greater distinction to be hated by him, because he loved scores of people, but he didn't sit up nights to hate anybody but me. He never printed another paragraph while he lived, and he never again signed Mark Twain to anything. At the time that the telegraph brought the news of his death, I was on the Pacific coast. I was a fresh new journalist, and needed a nom de guerre, so I confiscated the ancient mariner's discarded one, and have done my best to make it remain what it was in his hands, a sign and symbol and warrant that whatever is found in its company may be gambled on as being the petrified truth. How I have succeeded it would not be modest in me to say. The captain had an honorable pride in his profession, and an abiding love for it. He ordered his monument before he died, and kept it near him until he died. It stands over his grave now, in Bellefontaine Cemetery, St. Louis. It is his image, in marble, standing on duty at the pilot-wheel, and worthy to stand and confront criticism, for it represents a man who, in life, would have stayed there till he burned to a cinder, if duty required it. The finest thing we saw on our whole Mississippi trip we saw as we approached New Orleans in the steam-tug. This was the curving frontage of the Crescent City, lit up with the white glare of five miles of electric lights. It was a wonderful sight, and very beautiful. End of chapter 50 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 51 Reminiscences We left for St. Louis in the city of Baton Rouge, on a delightfully hot day, but with the main purpose of my visit, but lamely accomplished. I had hoped to hunt up and talk with a hundred steamboatmen, but got so pleasantly involved in the social life of the town that I got nothing more than mere five-minute talks with a couple of dozen of the craft. I was on the bench of the pilot-house when we backed out and straightened up for the start, the boat pausing for a good ready, in the old-fashioned way, and the black smoke piling out of the chimneys equally in the old-fashioned way. Then we began to gather momentum, and presently were fairly under way and booming along. It was all as natural and familiar, and so were the shoreward sights, as if there had been no break in my river life. There was a cub, and I judged that he would take the wheel now, and he did. Captain Bixby stepped into the pilot-house. Presently the cub closed up on the rank of steamships. He made me nervous, for he allowed too much water to show between our boat and the ships. I knew quite well what was going to happen, because I could date back in my own life and inspect the record. The captain looked on, during a silent half-minute, then took the wheel himself, and crowded the boat in, till she went scraping along within a hand-breadth of the ships. It was exactly the favor which he had done me, about a quarter of a century before, in that same spot, the first time I ever steamed out of the port of New Orleans. It was a very great and sincere pleasure to me to see the thing repeated, with somebody else as victim. We made Natchez, three hundred miles, in twenty-two hours and a half, much the swiftest passage I have ever made over that piece of water. The next morning I came on with the four o'clock watch, and saw Ritchie successfully run half a dozen crossings in a fog, using for his guidance the marked chart devised and patented by Bixie and himself. This sufficiently evidenced the great value of the chart. By and by, when the fog began to clear off, I noticed that the reflection of a tree in the smooth water of an overflowed bank, six hundred yards away, was stronger and blacker than the ghostly tree itself. The faint spectral trees, dimly glimpsed through the shredding fog, were very pretty things to see. We had a heavy thunderstorm at Natchez, another at Vicksburg, and still another about fifty miles below Memphis. They had an old-fashioned energy, which had long been unfamiliar to me. This third storm was accompanied by a raging wind. We tied up to the bank when we saw the tempest coming, and everybody left the pilot-house but me. The wind bent the young trees down, exposing the pale underside of the leaves, and gust after gust followed, in quick succession, thrashing the branches violently up and down, and to this side and that and creating swift waves of alternating green and white according to the side of the leaf that was exposed. And these waves raced after each other, as do their kind, over a wind-tossed field of oats. No color that was visible anywhere was quite natural. All tints were charged with a leaden tinge from the solid cloud-bank overhead. The river was leaden, all distances the same and even the far-reaching ranks of combing whitecaps were dully shaded by the dark, rich atmosphere through which their swarming legions marched. The thunder-peals were constant and deafening. Explosion followed explosion, with but inconsequential intervals between, 
and the reports grew steadily sharper and higher-keyed, and more trying to the ear. The lightning was as diligent as the thunder, and produced effects which enchanted the eye, and sent electric ecstasies of mixed delight and apprehension shivering along every nerve in the body, in unintermittent procession. The rain poured down in amazing volume, the ear-splitting thunder-peals broke nearer and nearer, the wind increased in fury and began to wrench off boughs and tree-tops and send them sailing away through space. The pilot-house fell to rocking and straining and cracking and surging, and I went down in the hold to see what time it was. People boast a good deal about alpine thunderstorms, but the storms which I have had the luck to see in the Alps were not the equals of some of which I have seen in the Mississippi Valley. I may not have seen the Alps do their best, of course, and if they can beat the Mississippi, I don't wish to. On this up-trip I saw a little towhead, infant island, half a mile long, which had been formed during the past nineteen years. Since there was so much time to spare, that nineteen years of it could be devoted to the construction of a mere towhead. Where was the use, originally, in rushing this whole globe through in six days? It is likely that if more time had been taken, in the first place, the world would have been made right, and this ceaseless improving and repairing would not be necessary now. But if you hurry a world, or a house, you are nearly sure to find out by and by that you have left out a towhead, or a broom-closet, or some other little convenience here and there, which has got to be supplied, no matter how much expense and vexation it may cost. We had a succession of black nights going up the river, and it was observable that whenever we landed, and suddenly inundated the trees, with intense sunburst of the electric light, a certain curious effect was always produced. Hundreds of birds flocked instantly out from the masses of shining green foliage, and went careening hither and thither through the white rays, and often a song-bird tuned up and fell to singing. We judged that they mistook this superb artificial day for the genuine article. We had a delightful trip in that thoroughly well-ordered steamer, and regretted that it was accomplished so speedily. By means of diligence and activity, we managed to hunt out nearly all the old friends. One was missing, however. He went to his reward, whatever it was, two years ago. But I found out all about him. His case helped me to realize how lasting can be the effect of a very trifling occurrence. When he was an apprentice blacksmith in our village, and I a schoolboy, a couple of young Englishmen came to the town, and sojourned a while. And one day they got themselves up in cheap royal finery, and did the Richard III's sword-fight with maniac energy and prodigious pow-wow in the presence of the village boys. This blacksmith cub was there, and the histrionic poison entered his bones. This vast, lumbering, ignorant, dull-witted lout was stage-struck, and irrecoverably. He disappeared and presently turned up in St. Louis. I ran across him there, by and by. He was standing musing on a street-corner, with his left hand on his hip, the thumb of his right supporting his chin, face bowed and frowning, slouch-hat pulled down over his forehead, imagining himself to be Othello, or some such character, and imagining that the passing crowd marked his tragic bearing, and were awe-struck. I joined him, and tried to get him down out of the clouds, 
but did not succeed. However, he casually informed me presently that he was a member of the Walnut Street Theatre Company, and he tried to say it with indifference, but the indifference was thin, and a mighty exultation showed through it. He said he was cast for a part in Julius Caesar for that night, and if I should come I would see him. If I should come. I said I wouldn't miss it if I were dead. I went away stupefied with astonishment, and saying to myself, how strange it is. We always thought this fellow a fool, yet the moment he comes to a great city, where intelligence and appreciation abound, the talent concealed in this shabby napkin is at once discovered, and promptly welcomed and honored. But I came away from the theatre that night disappointed and offended, for I had had no glimpse of my hero, and his name was not in the bills. I met him on the street the next morning, and before I could speak he asked, "'Did you see me?' "'No. You weren't there.' He looked surprised and disappointed. He said, "'Yes, I was. Indeed, I was. I was a Roman soldier.' "'Which one?' "'Why, didn't you see them Roman soldiers that stood back there in a rank, and sometimes marched in procession around the stage?' "'Do you mean the Roman army?' those six-sandaled roustabouts in night-shirts with tin shields and helmets, that marched around treading on each other's heels, in charge of a spider-legged consumptive dressed like themselves? Well, that's it, that's it. I was one of them Roman soldiers. I was the next to the last one. A half a year ago I used to always be the last one, but I have been promoted. Well, they told me that that poor fellow remained a Roman soldier to the last, a matter of thirty-four years. Sometimes they cast him for a speaking part, but not an elaborate one. He could be trusted to go and say, "'My lord, the carriage waits!' But if they ventured to add a sentence or two to this, his memory felt the strain, and he was likely to miss fire. Yet, poor devil, he had been patiently studying the part of Hamlet for more than thirty years, and he lived and died in the belief that some day he would be invited to play it. And this is what came of that fleeting visit of those young Englishmen to our village such ages and ages ago. What noble horseshoes this man might have made, but for those Englishmen! And what an inadequate Roman soldier he did make! A day or two after we reached St. Louis, I was walking along Fourth Street, when a grisly-headed man gave a sort of start as he passed me, then stopped, came back, inspected me narrowly, with a clouding brow, and finally said with deep asperity, "'Look here! Have you got that drink yet?' A maniac, I judged at first, but all in a flash I recognized him. I made an effort to blush that strained every muscle in me, and answered as sweetly and winningly as ever I knew how, "'Been a little slow, but am just this minute closing in on the place where they keep it. Come in and help.' He softened, and said make it a bottle of champagne, and he was agreeable. He said he had seen my name in the papers, and had put all his affairs aside and turned out, resolved to find me or die, and make me answer that question satisfactorily, or kill me, though the most of his late asperity had been rather counterfeit than otherwise. This meeting brought back to me the St. Louis riots of about thirty years ago. I spent a week there at that time, in a boarding-house, and had this young fellow for a neighbor across the hall. We saw some of the fightings and killings, and by and by we went one night to an armory where two hundred young men had met, upon call, to be armed and go forth against the rioters under command of a military man. We drilled till about ten o'clock at night, 
Then news came that the mob were in great force in the lower end of the town, and were sweeping everything before them. Our column moved at once. It was a very hot night, and my musket was very heavy. We marched and marched, and the nearer we approached the seat of war, the hotter I grew, and the thirstier I got. I was behind my friend, so finally I asked him to hold my musket while I dropped out and got a drink. Then I branched off and went home. I was not feeling any solicitude about him, of course, because I knew he was so well armed now that he could take care of himself without any trouble. If I had had any doubts about that, I would have borrowed another musket for him. I left the city pretty early the next morning, and if this grizzled man had not happened to encounter my name in the papers the other day in St. Louis, and felt moved to seek me out, I should have carried to my grave a heart-torturing uncertainty as to whether he ever got out of the riots all right or not. I ought to have inquired thirty years ago. I know that. And I would have inquired, if I had had the muskets. But in the circumstances he seemed better fixed to conduct the investigations than I was. One Monday, near the time of our visit to St. Louis, the Globe Democrat came out with a couple of pages of Sunday statistics whereby it appeared that 119,448 St. Louis people attended the morning and evening church services the day before, and 23,102 children attended Sunday school. Thus, 142,550 persons, out of the city's total of 400,000 population, respected the day religious-wise. I found these statistics, in a condensed form, in a telegram of the Associated Press, and preserved them. They made it apparent that St. Louis was in a higher state of grace than she could have claimed to be in any time. But now that I canvassed the figures narrowly, I suspect that the telegraph mutilated them. It cannot be that there are more than 150,000 Catholics in the town. The other 250,000 must be classified as Protestants. Out of these 250,000, according to this questionable telegram, only 26,362 attended church and Sunday school, while out of the 150,000 Catholics, 116,188 went to church and Sunday school. End of chapter 51「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 52 A Burning Brand All at once the thought came into my mind, I have not sought out Mr. Brown. Upon that text I desire to depart from the direct line of my subject, and make a little excursion. I wish to reveal a secret which I have carried with me nine years, and which has become burdensome. Upon a certain occasion, nine years ago, I had said, with strong feeling, If ever I see St. Louis again, I will seek out Mr. Brown, the great grain merchant, and ask of him the privilege of shaking him by the hand. The occasion and the circumstances were as follows. A friend of mine, a clergyman, came one evening and said, I have a most remarkable letter here which I want to read to you, if I can do it without breaking down. 
I must preface it with some explanations, however. The letter is written by an ex-thief and ex-vagabond of the lowest origin and basest rearing, a man all stained with crime and steeped in ignorance. But, thank God, with a mine of pure gold hidden away in him, as you shall see. His letter is written to a burglar named Williams, who is serving a nine-year term in a certain state prison for burglary. Williams was a particularly daring burglar, and plied that trade during a number of years. But he was caught at last and jailed, to await trial in a town where he had broken into a house at night, pistol in hand, and forced the owner to hand over to him eight thousand dollars in government bonds. Williams was not a common sort of person, by any means. He was a graduate of Harvard College, and came of good New England stock. His father was a clergyman. While lying in jail, his health began to fail, and he was threatened with consumption. This fact, together with the opportunity for reflection afforded by solitary confinement, had its effect, its natural effect. He fell into serious thought. His early training asserted itself with power, and wrought with strong influence upon his mind and heart. He put his old life behind him, and became an earnest Christian. Some ladies in the town heard of this, visited him, and by their encouraging words supported him in his good resolutions, and strengthened him to continue in his new life. The trial ended in his conviction and sentence to the state prison for the term of nine years, as I have before said. In the prison he became acquainted with the poor wretch referred to in the beginning of my talk, Jack Hunt, the writer of the letter which I am going to read. You will see that the acquaintanceship bore fruit for Hunt. When Hunt's time was out, he wandered to St. Louis, and from that place he wrote his letter to Williams. The letter got no further than the office of the prison warden, of course. Prisoners are not often allowed to receive letters from outside. The prison authorities read this letter, but did not destroy it. They had not the heart to do it. They read it to several persons, and eventually it fell into the hands of those ladies of whom I spoke a while ago. The other day I came across an old friend of mine, a clergyman, who had seen this letter, and was full of it. The mere remembrance of it so moved him that he could not talk of it without his voice breaking. He promised to get a copy of it for me, and here it is, an exact copy, with all the imperfections of the original preserved. It has many slang expressions in it, thieves are got, but their meaning has been interlined, in parenthesis, by the prison authorities. Louis, June ninth, 1872. Mr. W., friend Charlie, if I may call you so, I know you are surprised to get a letter from me, but I hope you won't be mad at my writing to you. I want to tell you my thanks for the way you talked to me when I was in prison. It has led me to try and be a better man. I guess you thought I did not care for what you said, and at the first go-off I didn't. But I knowed you was a man who had done big work with good men, and want no sucker, nor want gassing, and all the boys knowed it. I used to think at night what you said, and for it I knocked off swearing months before my time was up, for I saw it want no good, no how. The day my time was up, you told me, if I would shake the cross, quit stealing, and live on the square for months, it would be the best job I ever done in my life. The state agent gave me a ticket to here, and on the car I thought more of what you said to me, 
but didn't make up my mind. When we got to Chicago on the cars from there to here, I pulled off an old woman's leather. robbed her of her pocketbook. I hadn't no more than got it off when I wished I hadn't done it. For a while before that, I made up my mind to be a square bloke, for months on your word, but forgot it when I saw the leather was a grip, easy to get. But I kept close to her, and when she got out of the cars at a way place, I said, Marm, have you lost something? And she tumbled, discovered, her leather was gone off, gone. Is this it? says I, giving it to her. Well, if you ain't honest, says she, but I hadn't got cheek enough to stand that sort of talk, so I left her in a hurry. When I got here, I had one dollar and twenty-five cents left, and I didn't get no work for three days, as I ain't strong enough for roust about on a steamboat for a deckhand. The afternoon of the third day I spent my last ten cents for moons, large round sea-biscuit, and cheese, and I felt pretty rough, and was thinking I would have to go on the dipe, picking pockets, again, when I thought of what you once said about a fellow's calling on the Lord when he was in hard luck, and I thought I would try it once anyhow, but when I tried it, I got stuck on the start, and all I could get off was, Lord, give a poor fellow a chance to square it for three months, for Christ's sake, amen. And I kept a-thinking of it over and over as I went along. About an hour after that I was in Fourth Street, and this is what happened, and is the cause of my being where I am now, and about which I will tell you before I get done writing. As I was walking along, I heard a big noise, and saw a horse running away with a carriage with two children in it, and I grabbed up a piece of box cover from the sidewalk, and run in the middle of the street, and when the horse came up, I smashed him over the head as hard as I could drive. The board split to pieces, and the horse checked up a little, and I grabbed the reins and pulled his head down until he stopped. The gentleman what owned him came running up, and soon as he saw the children were all right, he shook hands with me and gave me a fifty-dollar greenback, and my asking the Lord to help me come into my head. And I was so thunderstruck I couldn't drop the reins nor say nothing. He saw something was up, and, coming back to me, said, "'My boy, are you hurt?' and the thought come into my head just then to ask him for work. And I asked him to take back the bill and give me a job. Says he, jump in here and let's talk about it, but keep the money. He asked me if I could take care of horses, and I said yes, for I used to hang round livery stables and often would help clean and drive horses. He told me he wanted a man for that work, and would give me sixteen dollars a month and board me. You bet I took that chance at once. That night, in my little room over the stable, I sat a long time thinking over my past life and of what had just happened, and I just got down on my knees and thanked the Lord for the job and to help me to square it, and to bless you for putting me up to it, and the next morning I'd done it again and got me some new togs, clothes, and a Bible, for I made up my mind, after what the Lord had done for me, I would read the Bible every night and morning and ask Him to keep an eye on me. When I had been there about a week, Mr. Brown—that's his name—came in my room one night and saw me reading the Bible. He asked me if I was a Christian, and I told him no. He asked me how it was I read the Bible instead of papers and books. Well, Charlie, I thought I had better give him a square deal in the start. So I told him all about my being in prison, and about you, and how I had almost done give up looking for work, and how the Lord got me the job when I asked him and the only way I had to pay him back 
was to read the Bible and square it, and I asked him to give me a chance for three months. He talked to me like a father for a long time, and told me I could stay, and then I felt better than ever I had done in my life, for I had given Mr. Brown a fair start with me, and now I didn't fear no one giving me a back cap, exposing his past life, and running me off the job. The next morning he called me into the library and gave me another square talk, and advised me to study some every day, and he would help me one or two hours every night, and he gave me a arithmetic, a spelling book, a geography, and a writing book, and he hers me every night. He lets me come into the house to prayers every morning, and got me put in a Bible class in the Sunday school, which I likes very much, for it helps me to understand my Bible better. Now, Charlie, the three months on the square are up two months ago, and, as you said, it is the best job I ever did in my life, and I commenced another of the same sort right away, only it is to God helping me to last a lifetime, Charlie. I wrote this letter to tell you, I do think God has forgiven my sins and heard your prayers, for you told me you should pray for me. I know I love to read His word, and tell Him all my troubles, and He helps me, I know, for I have plenty of chances to steal, but I don't feel to as I once did, and now I take more pleasure in going to church than to the theater, and that wasn't so once. Our minister and others often talk with me, and a month ago they wanted me to join the church, but I said, no, not now. I may be mistaken in my feelings. I will wait a while. But now I feel that God has called me, and on the first Sunday in July I will join the church. Dear friend, I wish I could write to you as I feel, but I can't do it yet. You know, I learned to read and write while prisons and I ain't got well enough along to write as I would talk. I know I ain't spelled all the words right in this and lots of other mistakes, but you will excuse it, I know, for you know I was brought up in a poorhouse until I run away, and that I never knew who my father and mother was, and I don't know my right name, and I hope you won't be mad at me, but I have as much right to one name as another, and I have taken your name, for you won't use it when you get out, I know, and you are the man I think most of in the world. So I hope you won't be mad. I am doing well. I put ten dollars a month in bank with twenty-five dollars of the fifty dollars. If you ever want any or all of it, let me know, and it is yours. I wish you would let me send you some now. I send you with this a receipt for a year of Little's living age. I didn't know what you would like, and I told Mr. Brown, and he said he thought you would like it. I wish I was near you, so I could send you Chuck refreshments on holidays. It would spoil this weather from here, but I will send you a box next Thanksgiving, anyway. Next week Mr. Brown takes me into his store as light porter, and will advance me as soon as I know a little more. He keeps a big granary store wholesale. I forgot to tell you of my mission school, Sunday school class. The school is in the Sunday afternoon. I went out two Sunday afternoons and picked up seven kids, little boys, and got them to come in. Two of them knew as much as I did, and I had them put in a class where they could learn something. I don't know much myself, but as these kids can't read, I get on nicely with them. I make sure of them by doing after them every Sunday hour before school time. I also got four girls to come. Tell Mac and Harry about me. 
If they will come out here when their time is up, I will get them jobs at once. I hope you will excuse this long letter and all mistakes. I wish I could see you, for I can't write as I would talk. I hope the warm weather is doing your lungs good. I was afraid when you was bleeding you would die. Give my respects to all the boys, and tell them how I am doing. I am doing well, and every one here treats me as kind as they can. Mr. Brown is going to write to you some time. I hope some day you will write to me. This letter is from your very true friend, C.W., who you know is Jack Hunt. I send you Mr. Brown's card. Send my letter to him. Here was true eloquence, irresistible eloquence, and without a single grace or ornament to help it out. I have seldom been so deeply stirred by any piece of writing. The reader of it halted, all the way through, on a lame and broken voice. Yet he had tried to fortify his feelings by several private readings of the letter, before venturing into company with it. He was practicing upon me to see if there was any hope of his being able to read the document to his prayer-meeting with anything like a decent command over his feelings. The result was not promising. However, he determined to risk it, and did. He got through tolerably well, but his audience broke down early, and stayed in that condition to the end. The fame of the letter spread through the town. A brother minister came and borrowed the manuscript, put it bodily into a sermon, preached the sermon to twelve hundred people on a Sunday morning, and the letter drowned them in their own tears. Then my friend put it into a sermon, and went before his Sunday morning congregation with it. It scored another triumph. The house wept as one individual. My friend went on summer vacation up into the fishing regions of our northern British neighbors, and carried this sermon with him, since he might possibly chance to need a sermon. He was asked to preach one day. The little church was full. Among the people present were the late Dr. J. G. Holland, the late Mr. Seymour of the New York Times, Mr. Page, the philanthropist and temperance advocate, and, I think, Senator Fry of Maine. The marvelous letter did its wanted work. All the people were moved. All the people wept. The tears flowed in a steady stream down Dr. Holland's cheeks, and nearly the same can be said with regard to all who were there. Mr. Page was so full of enthusiasm over the letter that he said he would not rest until he made pilgrimage to that prison, and had speech with the man who had been able to inspire a fellow unfortunate to write so priceless a tract. Ah, that unlucky Page! And another man! If they had only been in Jericho, that letter would have rung through the world, and stirred all the hearts of all the nations for a thousand years to come, and nobody might ever have found out that it was the confoundedest, brazenest, ingeniousest piece of fraud and humbuggery that was ever concocted to fool poor confiding mortals with. The letter was a pure swindle, and that is the truth, and take it by and large, it was without a compeer among swindles. It was perfect. It was rounded, symmetrical, complete, colossal. The reader learns it at this point, but we didn't learn it till some miles and weeks beyond this stage of the affair. My friend came back from the woods, and he and other clergymen and lay missionaries began once more to inundate audiences with their tears and the tears of said audiences. I begged hard for permission to print the letter in a magazine, and tell the watery story of its triumphs, 
Numbers of people got copies of the letter, with permission to circulate them in writing, but not in print. Copies were sent to the Sandwich Islands, and other far regions. Charles Dudley Warner was at church one day, when the worn letter was read and wept over. At the church door, afterward, he dropped a peculiarly cold iceberg down the clergyman's back, with the question, "'Do you know that letter to be genuine?' It was the first suspicion that had ever been voiced, but it had that sickening effect which first uttered suspicions against one's idol always have. Some talk followed. Why, what should make you suspect that it isn't genuine? Oh, nothing that I know of, except that it is too neat, and compact, and fluent, and nicely put together, for an ignorant person, an unpractised hand. I think it was done by an educated man. The literary artist had detected the literary machinery. If you will look at the letter now, you will detect it yourself. It is observable in every line. Straightway the clergyman went off with this seed of suspicion sprouting in him, and wrote to a minister residing in that town where Williams had been jailed and converted, asked for light, and also asked if a person in the literary line, meaning me, might be allowed to print the letter and tell its history. He presently received this answer. Reverend, <coughs> my dear friend, in regard to that convict's letter, there can be no doubt as to its genuineness. Williams, to whom it was written, lay in our jail and professed to have been converted. And Reverend Mr. <coughs> the chaplain, had great faith in the genuineness of the change, as much as one can have in such case. The letter was sent to one of our ladies, who is a Sunday-school teacher, sent either by Williams himself, or the chaplain of the state's prison, probably. She has been greatly annoyed in having so much publicity, lest it might seem a breach of confidence, or be an injury to Williams. In regard to its publication, I can give no permission. Though if the names and places were omitted, and especially if sent out of the country, I think you might take the responsibility and do it. It is a wonderful letter, which no Christian genius, much less one unsanctified, could ever have written, as showing the work of grace in a human heart, and in a very degraded and wicked one, it proves its own origin, and reproves our weak faith in its power to cope with any form of wickedness. Mr. Brown, of St. Louis, some one said, was a Hartford man. Do all whom you send from Hartford serve their master as well? P.S. Williams is still in the state's prison, serving out a long sentence of nine years, I think. He has been sick and threatened with consumption, but I have not inquired after him lately. This lady that I speak of corresponds with him, I presume, and will be quite sure to look after him. This letter arrived a few days after it was written, and up went Mr. William's stock again. Mr. Warner's low-down suspicion was laid in the cold, cold grave where it apparently belonged. It was a suspicion based upon mere internal evidence, anyway. And when you come to internal evidence, it's a big field, and a game that two can play at. As witness this other internal evidence, discovered by the writer of the note above quoted, that it is a wonderful letter, which no Christian genius, much less one unsanctified, could ever have written. I had permission now to print, provided I suppressed names and places, and sent my narrative out of the country. So I chose an Australian magazine for vehicle, as being far enough out of the country, 
and set myself to work on my article. And the ministers set the pumps going again, with a letter to work the handles. But meantime Brother Page had been agitating. He had not visited the penitentiary, but had sent a copy of the illustrious letter to the chaplain of that institution, and accompanied it with, apparently, inquiries. He got an answer, dated four days later than that other brother's reassuring epistle, and before my article was complete it wandered into my hands. The original is before me now, and I here append it. It is pretty well loaded with internal evidence of the most solid description. State's Prison, Chaplain's Office, July 11, 1873. Dear Brother Page, Herewith please find the letter kindly loaned me. I am afraid its genuineness cannot be established. It purports to be addressed to some prisoner here. No such letter ever came to a prisoner here. All letters received are carefully read by officers of the prison before they go into the hands of the convicts, and any such letter could not be forgotten. Again, Charles Williams is not a Christian man, but a dissolute, cunning prodigal, whose father is a minister of the gospel. His name is an assumed one. I am glad to have made your acquaintance. I am preparing a lecture upon life seen through prison bars, and should like to deliver the same in your vicinity. And so ended that little drama. My poor article went into the fire. For whereas the materials for it were now more abundant and infinitely richer than they had previously been, there were parties all around me who, although longing for the publication before, were a unit for suppression at this stage and complexion of the game. They said, Wait, the wound is too fresh yet. All the copies of the famous letter except mine disappeared suddenly, and from that time onward the aforetime same old drought set in in the churches. As a rule, the town was on a spacious grin for a while, but there were places in it where the grin did not appear, and where it was dangerous to refer to the ex-convict's letter. A word of explanation. Jack Hunt, the professed writer of the letter, was an imaginary person. The burglar Williams, Harvard graduate, son of a minister, wrote the letter himself, to himself, got it smuggled out of the prison, got it conveyed to persons who had supported and encouraged him in his conversion, where he knew two things would happen. The genuineness of the letter would not be doubted or inquired to, and the nub of it would be noticed, and would have valuable effect, the effect, indeed, of starting a movement to get Mr. Williams pardoned out of prison. That nub is so ingeniously, so casually flung in, and immediately left there in the tail of the letter, undwelt upon, that an indifferent reader would never suspect that it was the heart and core of the epistle if he even took note of it at all. This is the nub. I hope the warm weather is doing your lungs good. I was afraid when you was bleeding you would die. Give my respects, etc. That is all there is of it. Simply touch and go. No dwelling upon it. Nevertheless, it was intended for an eye that would be swift to see it, and it was meant to move a kind heart to try to effect the liberation of a poor, reformed, and purified fellow lying in the fell grip of consumption. When I for the first time heard that letter read nine years ago, I felt that it was the most remarkable one I had ever encountered, and it so warmed me toward Mr. Brown of St. Louis that I said that if ever I visited that city again I would seek out that excellent man and kiss the hem of his garment 
if it was a new one. Well, I visited St. Louis, but I did not hunt for Mr. Brown, for, alas, the investigations of long ago had proved that the benevolent Brown, like Jack Hunt, was not a real person, but a sheer invention of that gifted rascal Williams, burglar, Harvard graduate, son of a clergyman. End of chapter 52「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 53 My Boyhood's Home We took passage in one of the fast boats of the St. Louis and St. Paul Packet Company and started up the river. When I, as a boy, first saw the mouth of the Missouri River, it was twenty-two or twenty-three miles above St. Louis, according to the estimate of pilots. The wear and tear of the banks have moved it down eight miles since then, and the pilots say that within five years the river will cut through and move the mouth down five miles more, which will bring it within ten miles of St. Louis. About nightfall we passed the large and flourishing town of Alton, Illinois, and before daylight next morning the town of Louisiana, Missouri, a sleepy village in my day, but a brisk railway center now. However, all the towns out there are railway centers now. I could not clearly recognize the place. This seemed odd to me, for when I retired from the rebel army in '61, I retired upon Louisiana in good order, at least in good enough order for a person who had not yet learned how to retreat according to the rules of war, and had to trust to native genius. It seemed to me that for a first attempt at a retreat it was not badly done. I had done no advancing in all that campaign that was at all equal to it. There was a railway bridge across the river here, well sprinkled with glowing lights, and a very beautiful sight it was. At seven in the morning we reached Hannibal, Missouri where my boyhood was spent. I had had a glimpse of it fifteen years ago, and another glimpse six years earlier, but both were so brief that they hardly counted. The only notion of the town that remained in my mind was the memory of it as I had known it when I first quitted it twenty-nine years ago. That picture of it was still as clear and vivid to me as a photograph. I stepped ashore with the feeling of one who returns out of a dead-and-gone generation. I had a sort of realizing sense of what the Bastille prisoners must have felt when they used to come out and look upon Paris after years of captivity, and note how curiously the familiar and the strange were mixed together before them. I saw the new houses, saw them plainly enough, but they did not affect the older picture in my mind, for through their solid bricks and mortar I saw the vanished houses, which had formerly stood there with perfect distinctness. It was Sunday morning, and everybody was abed yet, so I passed through the vacant streets, still seeing the town as it was, and not as it is, and recognizing and metaphorically shaking hands with a hundred familiar objects which no longer exist, and finally climbed Holiday's Hill to get a comprehensive view. The whole town lay spread out below me then, and I could mark and fix every locality, every detail. Naturally, I was a good deal moved. 
I said, Many of the people I once knew in this tranquil refuge of my childhood are now in heaven. Some, I trust, are in the other place. The things about me and before me made me feel like a boy again, convinced me that I was a boy again, and that I had simply been dreaming an unusually long dream. But my reflections spoiled all that, for they forced me to say, I see fifty old houses down yonder, into each of which I could enter and find either a man or a woman who was a baby, or unborn, when I noticed those houses last, or a grandmother who was a plump young bride at that time. From this vantage ground the extensive view up and down the river and wide over the wooded expanses of Illinois is very beautiful, one of the most beautiful on the Mississippi, I think which is a hazardous remark to make, for the eight hundred miles of river between St. Louis and St. Paul afford an unbroken succession of lovely pictures. It may be that my affection for the one in question biases my judgment in its favor. I cannot say as to that. No matter, it was satisfyingly beautiful to me, and it had this advantage over all the other friends whom I was about to greet again. It had suffered no change. It was as young and fresh and comely and gracious as ever it had been, whereas the faces of the others would be old and scarred with the campaigns of life, and marked with their griefs and defeats, and would give me no upliftings of spirit. An old gentleman out on an early morning walk came along, and we discussed the weather, and then drifted into other matters. I could not remember his face. He said he had been living here twenty-eight years, so he had come after my time, and I had never seen him before. I asked him various questions, first about a mate of mine in Sunday school, what became of him. He graduated with honor in an eastern college, wandered off into the world somewhere, succeeded at nothing, passed out of knowledge and memory years ago, and is supposed to have gone to the dogs. He was bright and promised well when he was a boy. Yes, but the thing that happened is what became of it all. I asked after another lad, altogether the brightest in our village school when I was a boy. He, too, was graduated with honors from an eastern college, but life whipped him in every battle, straight along, and he died in one of the territories years ago, a defeated man. I asked after another of the bright boys. He is a success, always has been. Always will be, I think. I inquired after a young fellow who came to the town to study for one of the professions when I was a boy. He went at something else before he got through, went from medicine to law, or from law to medicine, then to some other new thing. Went away for a year, came back with a young wife, fell to drinking, then to gambling behind the door, finally took his wife and two young children to her father's, and went off to Mexico went from bad to worse, and finally died there, without a cent to buy a shroud, and without a friend to attend the funeral. Pity, for he was the best-natured and most cheery and hopeful young fellow that ever was. I named another boy. Oh, he is all right, lives here yet, has a wife and children, and is prospering. Same verdict concerning other boys. I named three schoolgirls. The first two live here, are married, and have children. The other is long ago dead, never married. I named, with emotion, one of my early sweethearts. 
She is all right. Been married three times, buried two husbands, divorced from the third. And I hear she is getting ready to marry an old fellow out in Colorado somewhere. She's got children scattered around here and there, most everywheres. The answer to several other inquiries was brief and simple. Killed in the war. I named another boy. Well, now, his case is curious. There wasn't a human being in this town but knew that that boy was a perfect chucklehead, perfect dummy, just a stupid ass, as you may say. Everybody knew it, and everybody said it. Well, if that very boy isn't the first lawyer in the state of Missouri today, I'm a Democrat. Is that so? It's actually so. I'm telling you the truth. How do you account for it? Account for it? Well, there ain't any accounting for it, except that if you send a damn fool to St. Louis, and you don't tell them he's a damn fool, they'll never find it out. Well, there's one thing sure. If I had a damn fool, I should know what to do with him. Ship him to St. Louis. It's the noblest market in the world for that kind of property. Well, when you come to look at it all around, and chew at it, and think it over, don't it just bang anything you ever heard of? Well, yes, it does seem to. But don't you think maybe it was the Hannibal people who were mistaken about the boy, and not the St. Louis people? Oh, nonsense. The people here have known him from the very cradle. They knew him a hundred times better than the St. Louis idiots could have known him. No, if you have got any damn fools that you want to realize on, take my advice. Send them to St. Louis. I mentioned a great number of people whom I had formerly known. Some were dead, some were gone away. Some had prospered, some had come to naught. But as regarded a dozen or so of the lot, the answer was comforting. Prosperous, live here yet, town littered with their children. I asked about Miss <coughs> and died in the insane asylum three or four years ago, never was out of it from the time she went in, and was always suffering, too, never got a shred of her mind back. If he spoke the truth, here was a heavy tragedy indeed. Thirty-six years in a madhouse, that some young fools might have some fun. I was a small boy at the time, and I saw those giddy young ladies come tiptoeing into the room where Miss <coughs> sat reading at midnight by lamp. The girl at the head of the file wore a shroud and a doe-face. She crept behind the victim, touched her on the shoulder, and she looked up and screamed, and then fell into convulsions. She did not recover from the fright, but went mad. In these days it seems incredible that people believed in ghosts so short a time ago, but they did. After asking after such other folk as I could call to mind, I finally inquired about myself. Oh, he succeeded well enough. Another case of damn fool. If they'd sent him to St. Louis, he'd have succeeded sooner. It was with much satisfaction that I recognized the wisdom of having told this candid gentleman, in the beginning, that my name was Smith. End of chapter 53 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 54. Past and Present. Being left to myself up there, I went on picking out old houses in the distant town, and calling back their former inmates out of the moldy past. Among them I presently recognized the house 
of the father of Lem Hackett, fictitious name. It carried me back more than a generation in a moment, and landed me in the midst of a time when happenings of life were not the natural and logical results of great general laws, but of special orders, and were freighted with very precise and distinct purposes, partly punitive in intent, partly admonitory, and usually local in application. When I was a small boy, Lem Hackett was drowned on a Sunday. He fell out of an empty flatboat where he was playing. Being loaded with sin, he went to the bottom like an anvil. He was the only boy in the village who slept that night. We others all lay awake repenting. We had not needed the information, delivered from the pulpit that evening, that Lem's was a case of special judgment. We knew that already. There was a ferocious thunderstorm that night, and it raged continuously until near dawn. The winds blew, the windows rattled, the rain swept along the roof in pelting sheets, and at the briefest of intervals the inky blackness of the night vanished. The houses over the way glared out white and blinding for a quivering instant. Then the solid darkness shut down again, and a splitting peal of thunder followed, which seemed to rend everything in the neighborhood to shreds and splinters. I sat up in bed, quaking and shuddering, waiting for the destruction of the world, and expecting it. To me there was nothing strange or incongruous in heaven's making such an uproar about Lem Hackett. Apparently it was the right and proper thing to do. Not a doubt entered my mind that all the angels were grouped together discussing this boy's case, and observing the awful bombardment of our beggarly little village with satisfaction and approval. There was one thing which disturbed me in the most serious way. That was the thought that this centering of the celestial interest on our village could not fail to attract the attention of the observers to people among us who might otherwise have escaped notice for years. I felt that I was not only one of those people, but the very one most likely to be discovered. That discovery could have but one result. I should be in the fire with Lem before the chill of the river had been fairly warmed out of him. I knew that this would be only just and fair. I was increasing the chances against myself all the time, by feeling a secret bitterness against Lem for having attracted this fatal attention to me. But I could not help it. This sinful thought persisted in infesting my breast in spite of me. Every time the lightning glared, I caught my breath, and judged I was gone. In my terror and misery, I meanly began to suggest other boys, and mention acts of theirs which were wickeder than mine, and peculiarly needed punishment. And I tried to pretend to myself that I was simply doing this in a casual way, and without intent to divert the heavenly attention to them for the purpose of getting rid of it myself. With deep sagacity, I put these mentions into the form of sorrowing recollections, and left-handed sham supplications, that the sins of those boys might be allowed to pass unnoticed. Possibly they may repent. It is true that Jim Smith broke a window and lied about it, but maybe he did not mean any harm, and although Tom Holmes says more bad words than any other boy in the village, he probably intends to repent, though he has never said he would. And whilst it is a fact that John Jones did fish a little on Sunday once, he didn't really catch anything but only just one small useless mud-cat. And maybe that wouldn't have been so awful if he had thrown it back. 
and he says he did, but he didn't. Pity, but they would repent of these dreadful things, and maybe they will yet. But while I was shamefully trying to draw attention to these poor chaps, who were doubtless directing the celestial attention to me at the same moment, though I never once suspected that, I had heedlessly left my candle burning. It was not a time to neglect even trifling precautions. There was no occasion to add anything to the facilities for attracting notice to me, so I put the light out. It was a long night to me, and perhaps the most distressful one I ever spent. I endured agonies of remorse for sins which I knew I had committed, and for others which I was not certain about, yet was sure that they had been set down against me in a book by an angel who was wiser than I, and did not trust such important matters to memory. It struck me, by and by, that I had been making a most foolish and calamitous mistake in one respect. Doubtless I had not only made my own destruction sure by directing attention to those other boys, but had already accomplished theirs. Doubtless the lightning had stretched them all dead in their beds by this time. The anguish and the fright which this thought gave me made my previous sufferings seem trifling by comparison. Things had become truly serious. I resolved to turn over a new leaf instantly. I also resolved to connect myself with the church the next day, if I survived to see its son appear. I resolved to cease from sin in all its forms, and to lead a high and blameless life for ever after. I would be punctual at church and Sunday school, visit the sick, carry baskets of victuals to the poor, simply to fulfill the regulation conditions, although I knew we had none among us so poor but they would smash the basket over my head for my pains. I would instruct other boys in right ways, and take the resulting trouncing meekly. I would subsist entirely on tracts. I would invade the rum-shop and warn the drunkard, and finally, if I escaped the fate of those who early become too good to live, I would go for a missionary. The storm subsided toward daybreak, and I dozed gradually to sleep with a sense of obligation to Lem Hackett for going to eternal suffering in that abrupt way, and thus preventing a far more dreadful disaster, my own loss. But when I rose refreshed by and by, and found that those other boys were still alive, I had a dim sense that perhaps the whole thing was a false alarm, that the entire turmoil had been on Lem's account, and nobody's else. The world looked so bright and safe that there did not seem to be any real occasion to turn over a new leaf. I was a little subdued during that day, and perhaps the next. After that my purpose of reforming slowly dropped out of my mind, and I had a peaceful, comfortable time again, until the next storm. That storm came about three weeks later, and it was the most unaccountable one to me that I had ever experienced for on the afternoon of that day Dutchy was drowned. Dutchy belonged to our Sunday school. He was a German lad, who did not know enough to come in out of the rain. But he was exasperatingly good, and had a prodigious memory. One Sunday he made himself the envy of all the youth and the talk of all the admiring village, by reciting three thousand verses of Scripture without missing a word. Then he went off the very next day, and got drowned. Circumstances gave to his death a peculiar impressiveness. We were all bathing in a muddy creek, which had a deep hole in it, 
and in this hole the coopers had sunk a pile of green hickory hoop-poles to soak, some twelve feet under water. We were diving, and seeing who could stay under longest. We managed to remain down by holding on to the hoop-poles. Dutchy made such a poor success of it that he was hailed with laughter and derision every time his head appeared above water. At last he seemed hurt with the taunts, and begged us to stand still on the bank and be fair with him and give him an honest count. Be friendly and kind just this once, and not miscount for the sake of having the fun of laughing at him. Treacherous winks were exchanged, and all said, All right, Dutchy, go ahead, we'll play fair. Dutchy plunged in, but the boys, instead of beginning to count, followed the lead of one of their number and scampered to a range of blackberry bushes close by and hid behind it. They imagined Dutchy's humiliation when he should rise after a superhuman effort and find the place silent and vacant, nobody there to applaud. They were so full of laugh with the idea that they were continually exploding into muffled cackles. Time swept on, and presently one who was peeping through the briars said with surprise, "'Why, he hasn't come up yet!' The laughing stopped. "'Boys, it's a splendid dive,' said one. "'Never mind that,' said another. "'The joke on him is all the better for it.' There was a remark or two more, and then a pause. Talking ceased, and all began to peer through the vines. Before long the boys' faces began to look uneasy, then anxious, then terrified. Still there was no movement of the placid water. Hearts began to beat fast, and faces to turn pale. We all glided out silently and stood on the bank, our horrified eyes wandering back and forth from each other's countenances to the water. Somebody must go down and see. Yes, that was plain, but nobody wanted that grisly task. Draw straws! So we did, with hands which shook so that we hardly knew what we were about. The lot fell to me, and I went down. The water was so muddy I could not see anything, but I felt around among the hoop-poles, and presently I grasped a limp wrist which gave me no response. And if it had, I should not have known it. I let it go with such a frightened suddenness. The boy had been caught among the hoop-poles and entangled there, helplessly. I fled to the surface and told the awful news. Some of us knew that if the boy were dragged out at once he might possibly be resuscitated, but we never thought of that. We did not think of anything. We did not know what to do, so we did nothing, except that the smaller lads cried piteously, and we all struggled frantically into our clothes, putting on anybody's that came handy, and getting them wrong side out and upside down, as a rule. Then we scurried away and gave the alarm, but none of us went back to see the end of the tragedy. We had a more important thing to attend to. We all flew home, and lost not a moment in getting ready to lead a better life. The night presently closed down, then came on that tremendous and utterly unaccountable storm. I was perfectly dazed. I could not understand it. It seemed to me that there must be some mistake. The elements were turned loose, and they rattled and banged and blazed away in the most blind and frantic manner. All heart and hope went out of me, and the dismal thought kept floating through my brain. If a boy who knows three thousand verses by heart is not satisfactory, what chance is there for anybody else? Of course I never questioned for a moment that the storm was on Dutchy's account, or that he or any other inconsequential animal was worthy of such a majestic demonstration from on high. The lesson of it was the only thing that troubled me. 
for it convinced me that if Dutchy, with all his perfections, was not a delight, it would be vain for me to turn over a new leaf, for I must infallibly fall hopelessly short of that boy, no matter how hard I might try. Nevertheless, I did turn it over. A highly educated fear compelled me to do that. But succeeding days of cheerfulness and sunshine came bothering around, and within a month I had so drifted backward that again I was as lost and comfortable as ever. Breakfast-time approached while I mused these musings and called these ancient happenings back to mind, so I got me back into the present and went down the hill. On my way through town to the hotel I saw the house which was my home when I was a boy. At present rates the people who now occupy it are of no more value than I am, but in my time they would have been worth not less than five hundred dollars apiece. They are colored folk. After breakfast I went out alone again, intending to hunt up some of the Sunday schools, and see how this generation of pupils might compare with their progenitors, who had sat with me in those places, and had probably taken me as a model, though I do not remember as to that now. By the public square there had been in my day a shabby little brick church called the Old Ship of Zion, which I had attended as a Sunday school scholar. And I found the locality easily enough but not the old church. It was gone, and a trig and rather hilarious new edifice was in its place. The pupils were better dressed and better looking than were those of my time. Consequently, they did not resemble their ancestors, and consequently there was nothing familiar to me in their faces. Still I contemplated them with a deep interest and a yearning wistfulness, and if I had been a girl I would have cried for they were the offspring, and represented, and occupied the places of boys and girls, some of whom I had loved to love, and some of whom I had loved to hate, but all of whom were dear to me, for the one reason or the other, so many years gone by, and, Lord, where be they now? I was mightily stirred, and would have been grateful to be allowed to remain unmolested and look my fill but a ball-summited superintendent, who had been a tow-headed Sunday-school mate of mine on that spot in the early ages, recognized me, and I talked a flutter of wild nonsense to those children to hide the thoughts which were in me, and which could not have been spoken without a betrayal of feeling that would have been recognized as out of character with me. Making speeches without preparation is no gift of mine, and I was resolved to shirk any new opportunity but in the next and larger Sunday-school I found myself in the rear of the assemblage, so I was very willing to go on the platform a moment for the sake of getting a good look at the scholars. On the spur of the moment I could not recall any of the old idiotic talks which visitors used to insult me with when I was a pupil there, and I was sorry for this, since it would have given me time and excuse to dawdle there and take a long and satisfying look at what I feel at liberty to say was an array of fresh young comeliness not matchable in another Sunday-school of the same size. As I talked merely to get a chance to inspect, and as I strung out the random rubbish solely to prolong the inspection, I judged it but decent to confess these low motives, and I did so. If the model boy was in either of these Sunday-schools, I did not see him. The model boy of my time—we never had but the one—was perfect. Perfect in manners, perfect in dress, perfect in conduct, perfect in filial piety, 
perfect in exterior godliness, but at bottom he was a prig, and as for the contents of his skull, they could have changed place with the contents of a pie, and nobody would have been the worse off for it but the pie. This fellow's reproachlessness was a standing reproach to every lad in the village. He was the admiration of all the mothers, and the detestation of all their sons. I was told what became of him, but, as it was a disappointment to me, I will not enter into details. He succeeded in life. End of chapter 54「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain Chapter 55 A Vendetta and Other Things During my three days' stay in the town, I woke up every morning with the impression that I was a boy, for in my dreams the faces were all young again, and looked as they had looked in the old times. But I went to bed a hundred years old every night, for meantime I had been seeing those faces as they are now. Of course I suffered some surprises, along at first, before I had become adjusted to the changed state of things. I met young ladies who did not seem to have changed at all, but they turned out to be the daughters of the young ladies I had in mind, sometimes their granddaughters. When you are told that a stranger of fifty is a grandmother, there is nothing surprising about it. But if, on the contrary, she is a person whom you knew as a little girl, it seems impossible. You say to yourself, how can a little girl be a grandmother? It takes some little time to accept and realize the fact that, while you have been growing old, your friends have not been standing still in that matter. I noticed that the greatest changes observable were with the women, not the men. I saw men whom thirty years had changed but slightly, but their wives had grown old. These were good women. It is very wearing to be good. There was a saddler whom I wished to see, but he was gone, dead these many years, they said. Once or twice a day the saddler used to go tearing down the street, putting on his coat as he went, and then everybody knew a steamboat was coming. Everybody knew, also, that John Staveley was not expecting anybody by the boat, or any freight either, and Staveley must have known that everybody knew this. Still it made no difference to him. He liked to seem to himself to be expecting a hundred thousand tons of saddles by this boat, and so he went on all his life, enjoying being faithfully on hand to receive and receipt for those saddles in case by any miracle they should come. A malicious Quincy paper used always to refer to this town in derision as Staveley's Landing. Staveley was one of my earliest admirations. I envied him his rush of imaginary business, and the display he was able to make of it before strangers, as he went flying down the street struggling with his fluttering coat. But there was a carpenter who was my chiefest hero. He was a mighty liar, but I did not know that. I believed everything he said. He was a romantic, sentimental, melodramatic fraud, and his bearing impressed me with awe. I vividly remember the first time he took me into his confidence. He was planning a board, and every now and then he would pause and heave a deep sigh, 
and occasionally mutter broken sentences, confused and not intelligible, but out of their midst an ejaculation sometimes escaped which made me shiver, and did me good. One was, "'Oh, God, it is his blood!' I sat on the tool-chest, and humbly and shudderingly admired him, for I judged he was full of crime. At last he said in a low voice, "'My little friend, can you keep a secret?' I eagerly said I could. "'A dark and dreadful one?' I satisfied him on that point. "'Then I will tell you some passages in my history, for, oh, I must relieve my burdened soul, or I shall die.' He cautioned me once more to be as silent as the grave. Then he told me he was a red-handed murderer. He put down his plane, held his hands out before him, contemplated them sadly, and said, "'Look, with these hands I have taken the lives of thirty human beings.' The effect which this had upon me was an inspiration to him, and he turned himself loose upon his subject with interest and energy. He left generalizing, and went into details, began with his first murder, described it, told what measures he had taken to avert suspicion, then passed to his second homicide, his third, his fourth, and so on. He had always done his murders with a bowie-knife, and he made all my hairs rise by suddenly snatching it out and showing it to me. At the end of this first séance I went home with six of his fearful secrets among my freightage, and found them a great help to my dreams, which had been sluggish for a while back. I sought him again and again on my Saturday holidays. In fact, I spent the summer with him, all of which was valuable to me. His fascinations never diminished, for he threw something fresh and stirring in the way of horror into each successive murder. He always gave names, dates, places, everything. This, by and by, enabled me to note two things, that he had killed his victims in every quarter of the globe, and that these victims were always named Lynch. The destruction of the Lynches went serenely on, Saturday after Saturday, until the original thirty had multiplied to sixty, and more to be heard from yet. Then my curiosity got the better of my timidity, and I asked how it happened that these justly punished persons all bore the same name. My hero said he had never divulged that dark secret to any living being, but felt that he could trust me, and therefore he would lay bare before me the story of his sad and blighted life. He had loved one too fair for earth, and she had reciprocated with all the sweet affection of her pure and noble nature. But he had a rival, a base hireling named Archibald Lynch, who said the girl should be his, or he would dye his hands in her heart's best blood. The carpenter, innocent and happy in love's young dream, gave no weight to the threat, but led his golden-haired darling to the altar, and there the two were made one. There also, just as the minister's hands were stretched in blessing over their heads, the fell deed was done, with a knife and the bride fell a corpse at her husband's feet. And what did the husband do? 
he plucked forth that knife, and kneeling by the body of his lost one, swore to consecrate his life to the extermination of all the human scum that bear the hated name of Lynch. That was it. He had been hunting down the lynches and slaughtering them from that day to this, twenty years. He had always used that same consecrated knife. With it he had murdered his long array of lynches, and with it he had left upon the forehead of each victim a peculiar mark, a cross, deeply incised, said he, The cross of the mysterious avenger is known in Europe, in America, in China, in Siam, in the tropics, in the polar seas, in the deserts of Asia, in all the earth. Wherever in the uttermost parts of the globe a lynch has penetrated, there has the mysterious cross been seen, and those who have seen it have shuddered and said, It is his mark. He has been here. You have heard of the mysterious avenger. Look upon him, for before you stands no less a person. But beware, breathe not a word to any soul. Be silent and wait. Some morning this town will flock aghast to view a gory corpse. On its brow will be seen the awful sign, and men will tremble and whisper, He has been here. It is the mysterious avenger's mark. You will come here, but I shall have vanished. You will see me no more. This ass had been reading the say, no doubt, and had had his poor romantic head turned by it, but as I had not yet seen the book then, I took his inventions for truth, and did not suspect that he was a plagiarist. However, we had a lynch living in the town, and the more I reflected upon his impending doom, the more I could not sleep. It seemed my plain duty to save him, and a still plainer and more important duty to get some sleep for myself. So at last I ventured to go to Mr. Lynch, and tell him what was about to happen to him, under strict secrecy. I advised him to fly, and certainly expected him to do it, but he laughed at me, and he did not stop there. He led me down to the carpenter's shop, gave the carpenter a jeering and scornful lecture upon his silly pretensions, slapped his face, made him get down on his knees and beg, then went off and left me to contemplate the cheap and pitiful ruin of what, in my eyes, had so lately been a majestic and incomparable hero. The carpenter blustered, flourished his knife, and doomed this lynch in his usual volcanic style, the size of his fateful words undiminished. But it was all wasted upon me. He was a hero to me no longer, but only a poor, foolish, exposed humbug. I was ashamed of him, and ashamed of myself. I took no further interest in him, and never went to his shop any more. He was a heavy loss to me, for he was the greatest hero I had ever known. The fellow must have had some talent, for some of his imaginary murders were so vividly and dramatically described that I remember all their details yet. The people of Hannibal are not more changed than is the town. It is no longer a village. It is a city, with a mayor, and a council, and waterworks, and probably a debt. It has fifteen thousand people, is a thriving and energetic place, and is paved like the rest of the west and south, where a well-paved street and a good sidewalk are things so seldom seen that one doubts them when he does see them. 
The customary half-dozen railways center in Hannibal now, and there is a new depot which cost a hundred thousand dollars. In my time the town had no specialty and no commercial grandeur. The daily packet usually landed a passenger and bought a catfish, and took away another passenger and a hatful of freight. But now a huge commerce in lumber has grown up, and a large miscellaneous commerce is one of the results. A deal of money changes hands there now. Bear Creek, so-called, perhaps, because it was always so particularly bare of bears, is hidden out of sight now, under islands and continents of piled lumber, and nobody but an expert can find it. I used to get drowned in it every summer regularly, and be drained out, and inflated and set going again by some chance enemy. But not enough of it is unoccupied now to drown a person in. It was a famous breeder of chills and fever in its day. I remember one summer when everybody in town had this disease at once. Many chimneys were shaken down, and all the houses were so racked that the town had to be rebuilt. The chasm or gorge between Lover's Leap and the hill west of it is supposed by scientists to have been caused by glacial action. This is a mistake. There is an interesting cave a mile or two below Hannibal among the bluffs. I would have liked to revisit it, but had no time. In my time the person who then owned it turned it into a mausoleum for his daughter, aged fourteen. The body of this poor child was put into a copper cylinder filled with alcohol, and this was suspended in one of the dismal avenues of the cave. The top of the cylinder was removable, and it was said to be a common thing for the base order of tourists to drag the dead face into view and examine it and comment upon it. End of chapter 55